Before we begin, I want to thank our sponsor, Next Estate Specialists, for buying, selling, and managing property in the Berlin market in Germany. You can find the Next Estate at next-estate.com. I'm not going to do the intro the way I usually do today. Instead, I'm going to share the intro from one of the stars of this series. Clayton Christensen is up next. McKinsey Global Institute did a study where they identified in America there had been nine uh, recessions since World War II. So the economy hit bottom and then rebounded to hit the prior peak economically. And then there's always a lag between when the economy and, and the, the economics of the recovery hit the prior peak. And then there's a lag for when the employment hits that prior peak. And as you can see here, for the first six of the nine recessions, it took about six months on average to get to the prior employment peak. But we had a recession in the early 90s where it took our economy 15 months to get to the employment peak. And then 2001, 2002, it took us 39 months to get to the prior peak. And when they did the study, we didn't know the answer uh, in the current recovery, and we still don't know the answer because in America, it's taken us 70 months, and we're still nowhere near the prior peak of uh, employment. And there clearly is something that's gone wrong in our economy. The, we have, as we've described there, jobless recoveries. And that, that wasn't the case 20 and 30 years ago. So that's Clay Christensen talking about something that you don't really hear about in some of his books, but you did hear about it in a 2014 HBO article that he co-authored with today's guest, another soul deeply touched by his relationship and his friendship and his working with the man, Leighton Christensen. He is also the author of a book that we're going to cover in the future over my shoulder there, Stall Points, excellent book, huge study done by this guest. It is a great pleasure to welcome to the show, Derek Van Beaver, you're very welcome. Thank you so much, Aidan. It's great to have you. I've been dying to get you onto the show for stall points. And then I was like, oh, this is a great opportunity to have you on for this article. Before we talk about the article and indeed how the article was crowdsourced and the context in which it was crowdsourced is, is fantastic as well. I thought we'd share that with our audience, but also the how much this article meant to Clay and to you. Maybe let's start with that, and then we'll go into the crowdsourcing element, and then we'd get stuck into the article itself. I'm so glad, Aidan, that you're including the capitalist dilemma in your uh, retrospective on Clay's work, because while we did publish an initial article on this in 2014, this was very much uh, unfinished business for Clay. Uh, you, you see in that clip that you shared from the RSA meeting that Clay had such a Deep. What, what I see when I watch that clip is uh, his deep concern for people. There was something wrong in the economy, and it was affecting the lives of people and the fortunes of people. And he really wanted to sort that out, but he, he felt too ill to complete this work. And I, I know he felt urgent about it. I know he was frustrated that he couldn't finish it. 
And I know also that he was frustrated with me and with the team because we weren't quite tracking all the way with him as as he went on um, in studying this. And so for that reason, we've never finished the work. We've never written a book-length version of it. But I'm so glad that we're talking about it today because Clay always closed his articles and his books with the admission that this was a first stab at solving a problem and an invitation to others. And I, you sent me back to our 2014 article. The last sentence that we wrote here was, we hope that this attempt to frame the problem will inspire many of you to work with us to devise solutions to this dilemma, not just for the individual good that might result, but for the long-term prosperity of us all. 100% Clay Christensen right there, an invitation to join him in puzzling through difficult, important problems. You mentioned there about that invitation, but you actually did execute that in invitation as well. And this was part of the BSSE course that you present and you facilitate, but also the one that Clay created as well. And that, that was a very important element of this because it included alumni and it included present and past pupils. This was so much fun. And um, not just not just the content of the work, but the way that we pulled it off. And this was this was also very deeply uh, resonant with Clay. Uh, not surprisingly, he was interested in disrupting academic publishing, and he was so impatient with the traditional model. So here, you know, here's how it works, right? Uh, you have a lone author who sits down in some garret and you know pencils out a draft of an article with a quill pen, and then sends it to a publisher who then sends it to anonymous reviewers who then incorporate or suggest changes and send it back to the author who has to incorporate all the changes, whether the author agrees with them or not. You then resubmit it to the publisher who then publishes it. And then you finally get a chance to understand if the work is relevant to your audience. Clay said, wait a second, let's short circuit that whole process. Let's involve the audience, the people who are going to be using this work, the managers, investors, entrepreneurs who are going to be benefiting from this work in its creation. And so just as you suggest, um, we have an alum, Tom Hume, who's actually in that RSA video, who uh, worked at IDEO and in fact developed the open IDEO crowdsourcing platform. We adapted that to our use, sent an invitation out to the thousands of alumni of our course over the years. And over time, we attracted uh, a large passive audience of alums who were interested, but then a core of really active alumni, about 150 of our alums who collaborated with us every step of the way. They would uh, suggest, you know, share their problems. They would suggest resolution. They would look at drafts of the article as it was emerging. In fact, Clay wanted, <coughs> Clay wanted the author's line of the article to read, uh, written by the alumni of the BSSE course at Harvard Business School, and that kind of broke HBR's rules and they wouldn't do that. But uh, their fingerprints are all over this work. And it was, I think it was kind of a harbinger of things to come. I mean, I guess there's much more um, support now for crowdsourcing academic research. And I understand why. I, I love the concept of the quill. <laughs> I think of Scrooge <laughs> McDuck with his quill in the corner. Exactly. Ink. <laughs> exactly. Let, let's get stuck exactly. into the article because I, I mean, talk about being relevant today, yep. this article. Like I was like, talk about serendipity. And, you know, we've seen the collapse of some of the banks, but also we're seeing that this, con 
this concentration of wealth and also more and more efficiency. We're in the world of chat GPT and AI and generative AI, which will drive more and more efficiencies, a, a recession of people. I often think of the, that Warren Buffett quote about the tide going out that actually it's like musical chairs. There's less and less chairs, but there's more and more profits. So this is efficiency innovations, mm -hmm. but that money's not being regenerated and replanted back into new growth market opportunities. This is a core concept of this article and indeed prosperity paradox, which we'll cover next with a FOSA. But let's give context to that because this is, uh, this is the crux of the paradox of the dilemma. Yeah, as you saw in the clip that you played, um, Clay was really puzzled by, you know, what is broken in the economy that's preventing us from doing what we've done so well in the past, across the past century, the kind of patient investment in long-term innovation. So we have a super abundance of capital, as you suggest, um, but it's not making its way to long-term market-creating innovations that create economic and job growth. And why is that? It's a, it's a so-called wicked problem. And we tried to understand it and take it apart and then offer some potential solutions to that problem in the work that we did with our alums. Derek, I have to say, right, I was thinking about this the other day, and and it's I've I've dreamt <laughs> I've dreamt about Clay because I've dreamt I've met him. I've dreamt he's talked to me. And he's kind of going, "It's great that you're doing this," and it's probably because I've immersed myself so much in the work, and it's been a, a magical experience meeting people that co-authored with him, hearing the great stories about him as well. But I I had one of these instances the other day one of these thoughts and the thought was basically that how people like Einstein and people like Nikola Tesla as they got on in their creation and their work and their research they got to this level of thinking about the universe in terms of energy and I actually thought about that well capital is energy and if you hoard the capital if you hoard the money and keep it it doesn't it's like not planting the seeds back into the marketplace again and it, it kind of kills it dead and that's what this felt like to me it was it was like this kind of holistic view spiritual view of looking at well you got to keep it moving and then you you can raise all the boats not just certain boats with people who are the privileged few that's what it that's what it felt like from the outside to me it's so interesting that you say that in and I'm sure if you go back and you look at um, this article um, from 2014, or probably all of Clay's work, you see that same spirit alive in his work, where he's he's making the intangible real. You know, in this article, we talk about emancipating capital, liberating capital, um, and trying to figure out how do we help managers to. Um, you know, fulfill their destiny, the promise of this noble profession that they're in. So you, you always see Clay rising up to this level where he's, he's even in the constructs that he created, you know, originally sustaining innovation and putting that against the, the trajectory of the rate of performance improvement that consumers can consume. You know, he, he's laying constructs on reality to try to make it concrete so that we can make progress. That that is a hundred percent of you know the gift of Clay Christensen to all of us. That um, he was, as people have told you in your other episodes, he was so deeply concerned concerned for all of us, and that we 
that we succeed. I, I told you in our in our pre-interview uh, the other day, um, one of the reasons I love him so much is that even though he devoted his life to studying kind of int an intractable problem, you know, why is it that um, we continue to get uh, tripped up by disruptive innovations, not, not being able to respond to them? He was, he never became cynical or, or, you know, moody about that. He was always so optimistic that we would figure it out. And, and I think that was, that that's why I wish this work had been completed as well, because I would have I, I would love to, to have tracked with him all the way through to the solution that he led us to. Just on your point about the hearing the stories, etc. I I probably haven't shared this, but I I've got amazing feedback emails from people who have not been previous listeners to the show and who ha have said that he changed the course of their lives, he changed how they thought, etc. One gentleman, for example, emailed me, Ram, and he was saying that he, he moved to the US and his father died. And then he had children and he had no mentor to teach him how to be a good father. And then he read, How Will You Measure Your Life? And that was, that was his construct, to your point, about how to be a good father. And I thought that was just a, a wonderful thing to hear. And that I'm, I'm sharing that for Clay's family and friends who were listening to this as well, that the, the reach has gone way, way beyond the academic field into the actual personal lives. Like I discussed last day with Karen Dillon about how will you measure your life, that that's how far the reach has gone. And I'm sure I'm sure Clay would be delighted to hear that up in the, after his interview upstairs when <laughs> when he got into the nightclub. So to take this to a personal level, um, you know, working with Clay was one of the great gifts of my life because, because it was so challenging to keep up with him. It's so much, so fun and so challenging to keep up with him. Like I, I, to put it in personal terms, I think the universe put me in relationship with Clay for a decade because he had so much to teach us and to teach me personally about being intellectually brave and I think that's an important thing for your listeners to take away from Clay's work. Um, uh, it was it was anything but timid. You know, Clay had no qualms about drawing conclusions in the absence of data. And yet most of us cling to data as if somehow the answer is in data. And, and Clay knew better, right? He knew that uh, if theory pointed toward an answer, as he was fond of saying, theory has more experience than we have with the problems that we're facing. It's got an opinion about what the right course of action is. And he was willing to follow theory wherever it led. You know, I'm so much more timid than that as a thinker. Um, I'm, I cling to data. Um, you know, I, I kind of hold to conventional solutions. And it was just a, a masterclass in education for me to be able to watch him at work and to learn from him. And one of the things we tell our students today, even now, three years after he's passed, uh, we, we tell them something he believed very deeply, which is you come to Harvard Business School as students, but you have to leave here as teachers if you're going to be able to shape the enterprises that you found or advise or invest in or lead. You have to be able to teach people, just like he taught Andy Grove, a theory so that they can come to their own solutions. And, and I hope your listeners um, take the, you know, the whole scope of this series that you've created and say, you know, what's, what's the impact for me on being exposed to the range 
of this this great great man's work i think that that's such a key line isn't it that that when you're leading change in an organization you're leading change on an individual level as well as a collective level you need to change the paradigms of people so they get it and those kind of threshold moments where people go ah oh, now i got it is far more effective than telling them telling them might last for a week or two and they'll pretend but it's not behavioral change and i i think that's what the theories give you it's a new way of seeing the world and then you realize oh i have no choice but to change and and that's the beauty and i love derek that you said that because that idea of i i've failed in in transformation roles in the past because i was like kind of going almost like you idiots do not get it it's so obvious but that that was the wrong approach it was like you need to bring people on the journey and yes it's painstaking and it's you're impatient but that's the job well i mean listen you you anchored um a lot of clay's thought in joe bauer's work and in your interview with joe and i assume you're doing more in the future uh his insights about how deeply in an organization resources are actually allocated you, you can sit in the C-suite and imagine that you're pulling all these, you know, powerful levers that are going to, you know, change people's behavior and move assets around. But where strategy is really made is at the level of the individual professional who has a decision to make about how am I going to spend my time today? And am I convinced by your guidance, by your teaching, that it's right for me to change behavior? And so, you know, it's classically, we tell our students, you can have a town hall and tell people, okay, this is the new strategy we're going to follow. And, and, you know, starting from today, you know, you're all going to do this, these different things. And then you turn on your heel and leave. And everybody's like, whew, glad that's over. You know, let's get back to work, you know, and, and it's just the job of a leader is so much more challenging, so much more lonely than um, most people understand. And it's certainly a theme of our course. Let's get stuck into the article because I, I love some, some of the language here and it's, it's applicable in a wide range of scenarios and one of the things that you talk about here is that like unlike some complicated macroeconomic factors the factors that lead to failure within organizations were well in control the the managers were well in control of those resource allocation reinvestment etc but there's a key line here i'm going to quote this in our in our view the crux of the problem is that investments in various different types of innovation affect economies and companies in very different ways, but are evaluated using the same flawed metrics. Specifically, financial markets and companies themselves use assessment metrics that make innovation that eliminate jobs more attractive than those that create jobs. That is so important to understand. And there's three different types of innovation that you define within that, that I'd love you to share, Derek. It's so funny. I love that you just quoted that because I went, you, you sent me back to the article to get ready for today. And I had written, I had kind of razored out exactly that passage um, as, as kind of the, the framing thought behind this work. So, yeah. So, you know, this was a little bit of a return to his macroeconomic roots um, in looking at the capitalist dilemma. So the innovators dilemma studied innovations in terms of competition between companies. You know, we, we talk about the innovator's dilemma as, as actually very much focused on understanding how uh, innovations arise within industries and then how uh, companies respond or don't. The capitalist dilemma kind of pulls back the focus here to look 
um, not at competition between firms, but at the outcome of innovations. So um, uh, sort of a macroeconomic paradox. Why is it that we have oceans of capital available to us, and yet we find it so difficult to invest that capital in what you know Clay called, uh, in this context, empowering innovations? What's broken here? And so uh, just, to, just to go into the, the mechanics, um, <laughs> so the way I think about it, uh, pretty lowbrow, Clay had kind of a, a wash, rinse, repeat uh, understanding of how the economy works when it's when it's clicking on all cylinders, and so he he thought about it um, in this way. Uh, you know, he said it. You know, the cycle begins when a company or an economy uh, creates disruptive or what he called in, in this context empowering innovations. So these are innovations that. Familiarly, familiarly transform costly and complicated products available to the few into simpler, cheaper products available to many more uh, people. So uh, the Ford Model T, uh, the IBM PC, cloud computing, uh, these kinds of innovations consume a lot of capital and they also create a lot of jobs, right? So, so we go from that sort of inception moment in a sector or an industry or a company and then move around the cycle to the next phase, which is what he called um, performance improving innovation. So these are innovations that don't create markets, but rather that expand markets, that focus on growing the top line of revenue. So think of all of the companies, for example, that piled into the PC business after, after IBM modularized that business, essentially you know, took Apple's walled garden and then broke it, broke it apart. Uh, so Compaq, Gateway, HP, you know, that list goes on and on of branded companies that just expanded the availability of the PC. So these kinds of innovations are very effective, very common in the economy. They use less capital and they create fewer new jobs, net new jobs, because they are what Clay called substitutive. And, and the example he always gave was, if you buy a Prius from Toyota, you're not going to buy their Camry. So they, they essentially substitute demand moving up the curve. Um, Finally, then in the last stage of the life cycle, so you've created a market, you've expanded it. We then move to um, what we called efficiency innovation. So now you're not focused on the top line, but on the bottom line, and you're actually pulling capital, liberating capital, to use that term we used earlier, liberating capital <clears throat> from the business and um, uh, uh, unfortunately destroying jobs, lots of jobs. So this, this is the phase where we pull capital out and where job dis destruction uh, occurs very commonly. Now, here's where Clay grew concerned. In that cycle that I described, in, in his understanding, the next phase of that cycle is to take that liberated capital and then to reinvest it in the next round of empowering innovation so that we keep building the economy. And yet... Um, that's not what we saw. And in that clip you showed, that was that gap was what he was worried about. That link in the chain was broken and capital was being sidelined, right? So not reinvested, but returned to uh, shareholders in the form of stock repurchases or simply held as dry powder. And there is a lot of dry powder in the economy. Uh, last I looked, there was about a trillion dollars of uninvested capital in the private equity uh, sector of the economy. And I think um, quite recently, 
more than 60% of earnings from large publicly held companies has been returned to investors in the form of um, stock repurchases. So you see that capital getting sidelined, which is limiting economic growth, limiting job creation, both of which concern Clay. That that was the broken, when he talked about the economy was emitting this, this, this strange clunking noise, that was the clunking noise that he heard that he was trying to get to the bottom of. There's another key line here, and it's called the orthodoxy of new finance. And you both write in the article, so to come back to our central question phrased in a different way, why do companies invest primarily in efficiency innovations which eliminate jobs rather than market-creating innovations which generate them? A big part of that answer lies in an unexamined economic assumption. The assumption, which has risen almost to a level of a religion, is that corporate performance should be focused on and measured by how efficiently capital is used this belief has an extraordinary impact on how both investors and managers assess opportunities, and it's the root of what you call the capitalist dilemma. Let's unpack that one. And so funny. Uh, I hope I hope your listeners have um, gathered across all of your episodes how how clever and how much fun Clay was. So he referred to what you just described as the Church of New Finance. Right. So he said, you know, we've accepted the gospel of the Church of New Finance. We've been baptized in its metrics. Right. Here, here's the problem. So the metrics that we use to evaluate uh, our innovation decisions promote capital efficiency above all else, even though, as we've agreed, we are awash in capital. So uh, why do we do that? Um, why have we become so such adherence to the church of new finance. And he, by the way, he blamed us as well. And I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. Business schools are very much to blame here as well. But first, and, and I, I'm not, I forget if your other guests have talked about this, even the very financial metrics that we use Im, embody this um, paradox and lead us down the wrong path. So for example, two super common performance metrics uh, RONA, return on net assets, or ROIC, return on invested capital. Um, these are performance metrics that are used all the time to evaluate CEOs and management teams and go into incentive comp. Um, the problem is uh, there are ratios. And if you want to improve your performance on the ratio, there are two things you can do. You can either increase the numerator, you can, you can invest in innovation to generate higher return, or alternatively, you can reduce the denominator. You can take assets off of your balance sheet. You, you can do, for example, what the semiconductor industry in the U.S. has been doing now for quite a long time. Um, and if you're a CEO and you're measured by RONA, uh, you're kind of indifferent to which of those two things you do. And in fact, pulling assets out of the equation is the easier answer, right? So this, this metric, it measures what it purports to measure, but our behavior when we interact with the metric, um, leads to bad consequences. Internal rate of return, right, which measures um, the return on a uh, proposed project based on the time horizon. Internal rate of return will always drive you to investments that cause you to pull your capital out earlier than uh, later. And very famously, gross margin, right? Clay used to talk about how different the U.S. Steel story would have come out if U.S. Steel had measured, you know, tons of steel that we're producing 
Um, and over time, by simply measuring gross margin, that causes you actually to exit the low end of the market rather than pay attention to a threat that lurks there. And so over time, U.S. Steel has become more and more relevant to fewer and fewer customers and allowed the mini mills to come up underneath them. So this idea that we are somehow captive to these metrics uh, is a huge problem uh, and one that we focus a lot of attention on in the course. I pulled another little quote here from Clay. I'm going to just share it with you here so you can see it. Different businesses need to have different metrics. Then a lot of what appears to be cultural inertia and so on falls away because the root of the problem is the metric. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad you said that because I pulled that little quote and I was going to drop it in and you beat me to it. But there's a, there's another part I just wanted to talk about with this. And it's a little bit off the trail of the track of the capitalist dilemma, but it's something that occurs so much to our audience all the time is that you are the change maker or the catalyst or the innovator within an organization. You come up with a new idea. Once it becomes interesting to the organization, they take it off you in a way, kind of like let the grown-ups take it from here. And then the innovator, the person who actually brought that baby to life, is often then thrown out of the organization or frustrated out of the organization because they are seeing as a waste of investment now going forward and therefore killing any future investment in the organization. This happens all the time in organizations. And I'd love your observations on that from your point of view. Yeah, that's interesting. And this this was a theme of Clay's as as you're not, as you won't be surprised. You know, he talked about how, it, uh, what happens there. So an innovation has been established that was intended perhaps to be self-disruptive, to, to point the way toward new growth. Then the organization uh, says, thank you very much. We'll, we'll take that on will tuck it underneath an existing business unit. So in, in stall points, which we can talk about at some future date, uh, you know, famously, famously, the fax machine, which was developed by Siemens, was way, way back in the day, you know, they said, thank you very much to the innovator. And they tucked it in their telex division. And of course, the telex division looked at that and said, oh, gee, this, this, this can't do anything for me. I'm going to just park it here and let it ride. Right. And then ultimately, uh, the Japanese manufacturers who had a real need for a fax machine because of their ideographic uh, communication language um, uh, took the fax machine and and uh, built an industry around it. But but you're right. Clay talked about uh, 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 organizations losing the plot when the original innovators move on or are moved on. And then the organization shapes that innovation, not to be self-disruptive, but to be sustaining, and thereby loses the opportunity to achieve the kind of growth that it that was locked up in that innovation, but was never released. I always think of the square peg in a round hole and cram, cramming it in and kind of going, it'll work, God damn it, get it in there. One other thing, one other thing that, that is underneath a lot of this that, that we share with our students, it was, it was, deeply puzzling to Clay, what we call, and this is what you're pointing to here, uh, Clay had a term for this. He, he called it the pull of established markets. So, um, you know, if you have an innovation that you could shape to be sustaining or to be disruptive, why is it that we're so much more attracted 
by shaping an innovation to be sustaining, to gain maybe a tenth of a point of market share in a big established market, rather than to take that same innovation and shape it to be disruptive and, and point it toward non-consumption, toward an entirely new opportunity that we could absolutely own. I mean, like the fax machine is a great example here, right? Why is it that that we're so comforted by the thought that we could have a tiny, tiny sliver of good fortune in an existing market rather than owning a brand new market that we pioneer? And uh, that qu that question always puzzled Clay. And it's one that we pose to our students in case after case study after case study, where we see people, um, you know, seemingly comforted by the fact that they've been able to find a safe, familiar home for what could have been a really cool, you know, path-breaking innovation. And, and uh, you know, some of our famous case studies for NIPRO and Sonocyte and other, other terms that will be familiar to the alums of our course who are listening to your podcast. Again and again and again, we fall prey to that allure, that, that kind of short-term comfortable feeling rather than being you know, brave and courageous and saying, you know, how big could this be if we broke ourselves free of our constraints? Why, why do we always tuck new, interesting innovations into the established organization, which is almost certainly the kiss of death for any, any innovation that seeks to be self-disruptive? A couple of things come to mind, Derek, when, when people will be hearing this, maybe investors or VCs and people who maybe manage pension funds but and then you know you know I think about how the, the changing demographics affect all this as well in that because we're living longer as well I suppose and maybe working longer people are actually looking for quicker returns on their pension funds and so are the pension fund managers so th th there's no longer long gestation of these funds as well and you call that out in that article and that's probably actually become worse since then. So that's one thing. Then there's the VCs and then there's the banks as well, not lending for the longer term, not investing in new growth markets because they're deemed too risky. And where we're seeing the growth is in growth markets that we'll cover in the future with, with the FOSA, with the prosperity paradox, which takes massive bravery from entrepreneurs. This is super important, Aiden. Um, there's a, you know, Clay often would pose, would structure uh, his work by posing, you know, seemingly rhetorical questions to kind of keep us keep us interested. And one of the questions that we pose in Capitalist Dilemma is, what has become of the long term investor? Where 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 are they? And this this was a piece of work that we didn't complete that was really important. And uh, an alum of ours named Curtis Arledge was working with us on this piece. It's it's super super important. So. We came to call this um, noise on the line between um, savers and the investments to which their savings are put. So think of it this way. Um, so think of savers, you and me, individuals who have um, investment assets that we've set to the side for the moment. Uh, our interest is that those assets grow over the long term. We don't need them today, but we will need them someday, uh, either for our own use or to pass on to our kids. And so we've got this nest egg that we want to grow handsomely over time. The problem, the, the noise on the line, is that there's no investment channel that aligns with that need. 
that's responsive to our desire for long-term return. So here, here's kind of how it works. So the typical saver gives their money to a pension plan. What I, I guess I take it in Ireland would be called a PRSA. This this should be like the the quintessential patient investor, right? Um, as an aside, this this always disturbed uh, us. Pension plans refer to themselves as asset owners. Um, actually, that's not true. We're the asset owners. We, the individual savers, are the owners of the assets. But but they call themselves that and think of themselves as that. So anyway, it's an aside. Anyway, those asset owners then give our funds to investment managers who then give our funds to companies whose boards then allocate those funds to individual managers and business units and projects, et cetera. Um, and, and so that's that's the chain. The problem is that all of these intermediate links in the chain are measured and measure themselves on shorter time horizons than our own. So for example, Pension schemes are evaluated annually for their performance. Investment managers are evaluated often even more frequently, semi-annually, annually at least. Companies are susceptible to all of the short-term uh, traps that we've talked about. And, uh, and so there is no channel that is aligned with our need. And it gets worse, right? VCs and private equity are increasingly short-term oriented for a variety of structural reasons that we could go into later if you want. And index funds, which are now about 30% of publicly traded shares on U.S. stock exchanges, index funds break our line of sight into the companies that we're invested in. So uh, the big three investors you know, here, Vanguard, State Street, BlackRock, they own about 90% of those index funds. And they couldn't go in and influence specific investment portfolios if they wanted to. They invest in the index not in individual companies. They don't, they don't have, at a minimum, they don't have the staff to go in and kind of get involved in the internal decision-making of the hundreds of companies that are um, tied up in the index. And they couldn't do anything about it, even if they found something that they wanted to influence. So we as savers are increasingly disconnected from the desire that we've got to be able to grow our assets for the long-term. Activist investors uh, are, you know, have earned a, you know, very legitimate reputation for, you know, agitating for an event. They want some short-term out outcome from their participation in a company. Um, you know, it's very, very troubling if you care about stimulating long-term investment with long-term savings. It's really, really hard in the current system for us to to get those funds to a place. Um, of true uh, patience for return, which is, of course, what market creating innovation and disruptive innovation require. And then, if you if you zoom back a little bit and you go, you, you know, as it, as that as that change maker, catalyst, or corporate explorer within the organization who's driving the new market growth, the the, the disruptive innovation, the cannibal the cannibal within the organization, if you want to call them that, that person then often will criticize the CEO or the leadership team, but not knowing the context and the pressure under which they are, because they're often under pressure by boards of directors, as you said, activist investors, Wall Street, some type of stock market and analysts. And that, that puts pressure on them to make short-term bets. Because what this exposes then is, okay, if I'm trying to jump an S-curve within an organization and invest in some new growth opportunity, 
it has to show big opportunities because from the perspective of, of a large organization that's turning over huge profit, you're kind of going, look, we made a million bucks. They're kind of going, I don't get out of bed for that. In their head, this is what they're saying. Yeah. And, and and this is this is a massive problem. It's the problem of perspective. From your perspective of the height of success, you look on, on, on upon a new opportunity as uh, an ant. And that is one of the big problems here. Yeah. Remember what Joe said in your podcast when he talked about the 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 the, uh, the insight that 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 came bursting into view when he was listening to the symphony orchestra. He said, "Wait a second. Strategy is made from the top down, but projects come from the bottom up." This this is the huge frustration w- with working in large organizations. Most of the real breakthrough ideas actually are germinated inside large incumbent organizations, but then um, you ha- you face exactly the paralysis that you talked about, where it's really really hard for me inside this organization to interest people in something that's different from what we you know what we've done in the past, and so either I you know take that idea, put it under my arm, and leave and say forget it. I'm going to go do this on the outside. Or I just get discouraged that this is obviously not a place that's interested in changing the world. And, you know, one of the big one of the big consequences of the capitalist dilemma is that the uh, talent that that we should be pointing toward these kinds of breakthrough innovations to working on these things get discouraged for exactly the reasons that you're talking about. One of our. one of our uh, alumni um, wrote to us and said, uh, you know, he worked in a Fortune 100 company. And he said, as I look at the portfolio of projects and initiatives that we've pursued, they're they're all the same. They're all measured uh, by the same metrics. They're all effectively pointed toward performance improving or sustaining ends. And it's really, really difficult to try to do anything you know different or groundbreaking or interesting here and I haven't looked in but m- I would be surprised if 9 years on he's he's still in that organization super talented person who just didn't see any interest in changing the world <laughs> making a making a difference in the world as 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 uh you know we famously say in our mission statement here at HBS yeah, it's, it's so frustrating. And, and this show is designed for those people, those change makers who suffer that. And and also, there's a mental health issue with it as well, Derek, I find many corporate change makers are suffer from gaslighting, they're made feel like they're the problem, and they don't get it, etc. And then they leave and they become frustrated. And they usually go off and become consultants or some, some similar thing working for yourself, you don't have to deal with that kind of corporate politics that is so important when you're trying to sell ideas and this goes back to your ideas you need to be a teacher you need to bring people on on the journey Uh, an amazing thing just to share with you on the teaching aspect was one of my great mentors was d hawk he he wrote the forward for my book and he taught me about this beautiful word e-juice and e-juice is this kind of word that's archaic which means to draw out and it's the word that's the it's the root of the word education. And and I often think about that, that this is what you're trying to do. You're trying to draw out potential or opportunity within an organization. And it's really, really difficult. 
And I say that to say there's four solutions that you offer in the capitalist dilemma as well. And I highly recommend our audience to go out and seek out that paper. It's on hbr.org, as many papers are, and have a read of it. It's it's so relevant today. It includes many, many things. You'd be nodding along, kind of going, I, yeah, I've experienced that myself. But it also exposes things that you wouldn't have thought about, including some of the solutions like rebalancing business schools, repurposing capital, etc. Maybe you'll take us through those at a high level. You know, one one that I really want to make sure that we don't lose is, you know, when, when we were looking at who are the culprits behind the capitalist dilemma, one of the first things that we did was to hold a, a mirror up to ourselves. And, uh, you know, Clay was, Clay was fond of observing that, you know, among the uh, clergy in the Church of New Finance are business school professors. And so as we looked, for example, at Harvard Business School, we, we saw a couple of things that concerned us. One was just in the way that we teach, we've stovepiped the curriculum so that if, if you come to get an MBA here in your first year, you take strategy, which is separate from finance, which is separate from marketing, which is separate from production, right? They're all in their own domains. And so we're not teaching from the inception of your time here how to integrate and balance all of these disciplines. So you, you've no doubt heard of the you know famous um, uh, uh, I suppose the the bromide, where you say that finance eats strategy for breakfast every day. Well, that's true. Hard measures drive out soft considerations, and if you're the CEO of the organization or of a of a business unit, you have to know that, and you you have to say, I know how the organization is going to treat new, unconventional ideas, and I you know what. Um, what do we, we, we say, we, we tell our students, if you understand the forces that really drive resource allocation in an organization, it can make you a very powerful person. And so the understanding that from the financial perspective, efficiency innovation is always, always going to look more attractive than market creating or performance improving innovation. The, the, the metrics are just going to lead you to that. If you understand that, then you can stand against that and you can build a, a balanced portfolio and strategy. Um, and uh, even closer to home, uh, a classmate of Clay's in business school, Dan Bricklin, actually invented the spreadsheet, which you know Clay referred to in the article as like, I think he called it the fast food of business decision making. So, so Dan was sitting in one of our classrooms in 1978 and you know, watching his classmates, you know, up at the black blackboard, doing these incredibly laborious calculations to come out with a net present value calculation, and and Dan was just thinking, gosh, wouldn't it be great if there was a tool where if you changed an assumption, then then everything would click through to the end and you get a different outcome, and so he created VisiCalc, which was you know first sold. I think it was what was really behind the the Apple II really taking off for business people. And of course, now um, we're so accustomed to the spreadsheet, to the to going to Excel. In fact, if we're evaluating a new innovation, the first thing we do now is to run it through Excel and to see, um, you know, how do we make this as attractive as possible? And of course, um, you start to mess with the assumptions and figure out, oh, you know, how much do I have to invest? How fast can I get my money back? Um, if the first gate uh, uh, of an innovation 
consideration is the financial impact, then you are always going to default to efficiency innovation because those will absolutely pencil out the best and they'll rise to the top of a unified investment portfolio. So, you know, we, we looked at ourselves and said, gee, we need to change the, the way that we're teaching, the way that we organize our teaching. And we need to teach our students that if you want to develop a diversified portfolio of ideas, you've got to, you've got to put the financial considerations last and first ask yourself, you know, how good could this business be? How interesting could it be? How much impact could it have on the world? And, and then start to run it through the model. I, you know, I think Andy Jassy has talked about at Amazon that AWS was not produced originally, wasn't greenlighted originally because it looked so great on uh, a spreadsheet, but rather by how much the world would change if we actually could create a, a scalable uh, affordable um, cloud computing solution, right? So that's a really important message. Now, I think we're behind on both of those. I, I think I think the default for our students is first thing to reach for Excel, and that leads that leads down a troubled path. It's so funny you say that. I when I one of the roles I left because I was playing that role of of the corporate innovator. The way I described it when I left, I said my world has gone from a blank canvas using Photoshop to living in Excel sheets. Everything had to be justified. And then what, what it also revealed was that recognition and rewards also play such a massive role. People were rewarded based on efficiency innovations. It's not, it's not just their fault. It's, uh, we're, we're animals and we react to stimulus. And the stimulus is, well, here's the carrot in order to get us better efficiencies. Then you'll be rewarded. Not take a bold bet on the future that might or might not work out depending on certain cir circumstances. And that way, m many ideas are killed too. Uh, I think you've, I think others have quoted <clears throat> on your program in the past that Clay was famous for saying that management is the most noble of professions because you can have so much impact on so many different kinds of people across your career. Um, but this, this, problem he took personally. And, and he said in the article, another thing I wrote down that I wanted to make sure that, that we shared today was, he said, um, you know, when we think of our job as playing with assumptions on a spreadsheet to figure out how does this, how does this innovation pencil out in a way that makes it most attractive to the greatest number of people, notably in the finance suite, right? When we do that, it's almost as if our job as managers has been reduced to sourcing, assembling, and shipping the numbers that deliver short-term gains. That really, that that stuck with him in with an immediacy that he repeated that a lot, that we've almost taken the, the promise, the life-changing promise of being a manager in an organization, and we've reduced that roll down to being a functionary and and he he felt he felt that gap keenly i'd love you to share about your relationship with clay you you mentioned some of that before about being being placed by the big chess player in the sky on the same board <laughs> as clay in proximity i want to also mention some of the things you dropped in that article as well you mentioned your colleague gautam mukunda he's also a forthcoming guest on the show uh, probably after the summer, he has some new books coming out as well, because he talks about some of the similar challenges. 
I also want to mention as well an article, another article you co-authored with Clay, The Power of Market Creation, which is a, a great article as well. And a little, little teaser from that article, for example, you say in there, start early, launch new growth businesses regularly while the core is still healthy, establishing a policy that mandates the launch of new disruptive growth businesses in a predetermined rhythm is the only way for executives to survive, for the organization to survive and avoid reacting after the growth engine has stalled. That's a little tip of the hat also to stall points as well, which we'll cover in the future. Unbelievable research in stall points between Derek and his co-author, Matthew Olson. We're going to cover that in the future. Absolutely love that book. It's it's one of my favorite books of innovation because it gave me so much data to back up stuff you were saying and seeing anecdotally as well. Brilliant book. But let's let's move then to your relationship with Clay because he had a dramatic effect on you and the way you thought and the way the way you taught in t- with a th and without a th as well uh in in every aspect but also um the course of your life i suppose and and that's one of the things that i thought was so remarkable and and i go to myself imagine people said that about you when you pass on like that would be just the best ever if people were like on oh he had a really great effect on my life so if we if we can follow in his footsteps in some way, we've done a good job. Yeah, I've 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 told you that I I regarded working with Clay as a as a as a great gift in my life and and really important to my own development and and just my the, the fun of being alive to be around Clay uh, for that long. Um, we met originally uh, when we when Matt and I had published a draft of Stall Points. Um, or produced a draft of stall points. We sent a copy to Clay, who had just uh, published this book called Innovator's Dilemma, and we were we were fans. And we were fans in part because we both saw the same phenomenon. He he had a mechanical explanation in the theory of disruption for something that was interesting to us psychologically, which was this what we called. Uh, we, we were interested in why is it that incumbents so often dismiss these you know, upstart entrance. And we kind of observed it, we captured it as the cycle of disdain, denial, and rationalization, where where you said, oh, they're, you know, they'll, they'll never amount to anything, that, you know, they got lucky the first time, or, well, they'll never come after us, right? And and Clay, you know, you know, was so kind, he he read our draft, he blurbed our book. You know, we now understand that phenomenon, you know, Clark put a name to it. He called it asymmetric motivations. We, we now understand why that happens. But Clay was so kind. He, he uh, invited me up here. He let me teach a class, you know, back in the late 90s. Uh, so it was the beginning of a long friendship of ours. And then I moved here. We, My family moved up here so I could go to divinity school. And I checked in with Clay across that period when he was having his first real health challenges. I, I checked in with him periodically just to make sure he was okay. And he he finally said, when I graduated, he said, look, Derek, come teach with me, run my research group. If you're any good at it, I'll help you to make your way here. And uh, I was sharing the, with you the other day, uh, another piece of unfinished business that uh, I've been carrying on with a, a team of colleagues, but Clay would have been a hundred percent involved in was this work that we're doing on the spiritual lives of leaders, inviting you know leaders of scale enterprises to come talk to our students about what really drives them, what's what faith practices, spiritual commitments, etc., are important to them. 
And Clay would have been 100% involved in this work because he, he was really the only, you know, kind of world famous, you know, the only flag rank faculty member here who was willing to talk about his faith, how important it was to him, how it how it drove him uh, in his day-to-day work. And uh, he and I shared uh, conversation on that, shared inspiration from that. And uh, I, every time we convene this class, I put up his picture and I say, you know, if Clay were here, you know, he, he, he famously always said, when we beach up against a problem that we can't solve, when we beach up against an intractable problem, it's typically because we've gotten the categories wrong. And in, in today's society, to, to try to figure out the connections among, you know, faith, ethics, morality, spirituality, religion. It's such a tangled knot. I wish he were here to help us untangle that and to help us figure out how how do we respond to our deepest and purest impulses as managers. And because that, he certainly stood for that. He stood for that for me and for all of us. Beautiful. I, I don't think there's anything more we can say than that, Derek. I think, uh, again, if we can live towards that and Somebody says even a, a tenth of what was said about Clay, we've done a good job. I'm so delighted to have you on the show eventually, Derek, and, and I look forward to covering stall points in the future, still more relevant than ever before. It's funny how nothing changes in many ways, and in some cases because of the speed of change due to technology and technological change that these books have become more relevant than ever before. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, author, along with Clay, of The Capitalist Dilemma, Derek Van Beaver, thank you for joining us. Oh, Aiden, thank you so much. And I've been an avid listener to your series, and you've invited so many people uh, on this program who love Clay and learned from him and with him, and it's an honor to be part of this. So thank you very much. Brilliant. Mic drop. <laughs> As always, thank you to our sponsor, Next Estate, specialists for English speakers for buying, selling, and managing property. In the Berlin market in Germany, you can find Next Estate at next-estate.com.